So some of the challenges we've had is that when we do see a, a crisis that NATO wants to respond to, we don't have that time for that dialogue between what military capacities we have and options we have that could assist. And the political side wants something visible and with immediate effect. And where the military is doing, you know, a really deliberate type planning and the, the political side wants quick decisions, quite often we have political decisions that are taken that don't really match with the capacity and the options the military was thinking about. So the importance of the civil military aspect is that we need those early discussions with the civilian side and understanding what the military has in their capability toolbox and understand what the political side wants to deliver, which is something, as I mentioned, visible with immediate effect. Hello and welcome to the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I'm Kyle and I'll be your host. And in today's episode, we'll be exploring the CivMil planning domain and disaster response with insights from Mr. Tim Lennon, our expert in the field and previously the head of NATO's Euro-Atlantic Disaster Response Coordination Center. The center, which is NATO's principal civil emergency response mechanism, is responsible for NATO's response to disasters in the Euro-Atlantic area. While managing 31 allied and 37 partner nations' actions, it also serves as a coordination hub with other international organizations, including the United Nations, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, and the World Food Program, as well as the World Health Organization. So today we will discuss that experience with Tim, as well as the lessons and perspectives on international cooperation and civil planning, especially as it applies to disasters and emergencies. So Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, uh, Kyle, for having me on this podcast. Now, it's really great to have you here because I think this is one of those domains that's going to become increasingly important as we have more complex emergencies, climate changes, climate security issues, and disasters that start to border upon sort of or encroach upon sort of national security issues, right? And so I think the world is becoming more complex and the military is being a real capability that nations can rely on. So I think this is going to be a relevant and important topic. But let's start off with a really easy question, which is sort of civil mill planning domain. What does that mean to you coming from an international organization like NATO? Okay, that's a good question, and you're exactly right. The world is becoming more complex. We're seeing increased number of disasters on an escalating pace, and the civilian capacity is being overwhelmed itself. So naturally, at a national level, more and more militaries are being used to respond to disasters in emergency situations in their nation themselves. But when it comes to the international level, we see... You know, we have the Oslo guidelines, which military assets could be used, should be used as a last resort. But, you know, with no one else there, quite often now, the military is the only resort. And we're moving towards how do we put the civil and the military together where the civilians are the professionals in the disaster response. The military, that's not their core business. They're normally uh, defending their nation's security. However, we need to understand each other in this space. And civil planning is combination or a uh, an amalgamation of the two organizations or the two domains coming together towards you know a similar objective, and that is you know primarily in a disaster response. It's you know relieves the suffering and help the affected people. So the organization itself, I, I joined uh, NATO in 2007, and 
the civ mill planning aspect was becoming more important because we were involved in Afghanistan. A lot of the civilian development actors, the humanitarian assistance, the governance actors, they were not present. So military had to take on those roles themselves. And we've seen the provincial reconstruction teams, and that is where we expanded into some stabilization reconstruction activities and government advising, which isn't necessarily a, a military aspect. But when we take a look at the big picture, the military and the civilians have to work together to you know, come to those end objectives. So making sure those objectives are aligned and making sure we have the right tools in place to have some sort of impact and effect at the end of the day. I'm glad that you mentioned that it, in some cases, the military is often perceived, I guess, as almost being a first responder in some nations, because let's say in some Western nations, if not most Western nations, as you mentioned, the use of military resources is a last resort during disasters and humanitarian situations, obviously. However, in some nations, because the funding of the security architecture, like the military is the greatest resource that they have, comparatively speaking, like fire departments are significantly underinvested and underdeveloped. And so I think we lack the appreciation in many domains, especially if you're coming from big nations like the United States or Canada and others where, okay, you can reserve military capability as a last resort. But in many smaller nations, which don't have the budget, the depth of manpower, personnel, public safety infrastructure, the military is a capability you have to deploy and sometimes people might be surprised that that happens on a daily basis in many different nations. Exactly. And we have many of our partner nations who's actually uniformed civilians responding to these disasters. You know, state emergency services, they're uniformed people. So they have an institution similar to the military. They're wearing a uniform, but they're not in the security domain itself. But in today's environment, Security is all interconnected with, you know, the climate, the uh, economic, all these other domains that are important to not just national security, but for instance, disaster that overwhelms a, a nation can become a security issue. So the uniform is always a good identifier for the military when we come into this space. But we can't forget there's also civilians that wear, while they're uniformed, and I don't know whether you call them military or not, but they're institutional folks that come to the aid of a nation, their own nation, when it comes to disaster response. So as we established, I mean, and we started this discussion, we are talking about a changing and more complex world that we're responding in and sort of the risks and the hazards and different profiles are changing, which forces us to reconsider our resource allocation and the use of resources to respond to disasters. What are some of these challenges that you've seen in your time, both with NATO, with outside of NATO, just from your sort of professional background in that civ mill domain, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing today that we're dealing with in terms of, you know, possibly resource constraints, whatever the case is in this civ mill domain? What are the issues? What are the obstacles here? Some of the challenges, and I'll speak from the NATO perspective itself. You know, NATO is a political military organization, primarily Ministry of Defense infested, but what happens is these decisions that are being made are not taken by the Ministry of Defense. So the decisions to deploy assistance to another nation, they are, you know, primarily planned for, organized by other ministries and then decided upon by the Ministries of Foreign Affairs. So when it comes to the decision-making at NATO, there are a number of layers that we need to go through, the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and then we have to also ensure that we're not making duplicative effort of other organizations. 
So what we need to do as the military is bring our comparative advantage. And our comparative advantage from a military perspective is the logistics, you know, the large scale planning and coordination, and the responsiveness for most militaries anyway. Military can respond quite rapidly, but when it comes to a NATO organization, when there's decisions to be made, that response is inhibited by the NATO crisis management process. And the crisis management process, we go through a number of you know checks and balances to ensure we have political control from all nations and political control over the military from that perspective. But then what are we doing as an alliance? So some nations will bilaterally send military or uniformed personnel to a, a disaster. But then what do we want to do as NATO? And a lot of the challenges are the political decision making at NATO, whether we're going to respond to a disaster. Quite often it becomes political, you know, whether we're going to respond or not. I say this in a different scale because there's two ways the Euro-Atlantic Disaster Response Coordination Center can be activated. One is a request from a partner or an ally, and they will essentially self-activates itself. We do not have to go through council decision-making if it's a normal request for assistance that they're looking for, you know, firefighting equipment, tents, blankets. But if there's going to be consideration of military boots on the ground from a NATO perspective, this will take a a NATO decision, a political decision in the North Atlantic Council. So some of the challenges we've had is that when we do see a, a crisis that NATO wants to respond to, we don't have that time for that dialogue between what military capacities we have and options we have that could assist. And the political side wants something visible and with immediate effect. And where the military is doing a really deliberate type planning and the the political side wants quick decisions. Quite often we have political decisions that are taken that don't really match with the capacity and the options the military was thinking about. So the importance of the civil military aspect is that we need those early discussions with the civilian side and understanding what the military has in their capability toolbox and understand what the political side wants to deliver, which is something, as I mentioned, visible with immediate effect. But we have to, you know, when NATO says they're going to deliver something, we need to deliver. And that's, you know, because we stand with all our allies and we assist all our partners when need is there. So one of the biggest challenges, you know, just to reiterate, is the decision-making process on whether we deploy military assets or military function and whether those the political early discussions that need to take place between the civilian actors, because when we deploy, we don't just deploy in isolation. We consult with the United Nations UNOCHA. We consult with the European Union's Emergency Response Coordination Center. We do not want duplicative effort. We do also respond or consult with the with the uh, stricken nation. Because it's important to, you know, one, understand if they want military assets, assisting them in the, the disaster. And we need to ensure that our capacities meet their needs. And if they don't, you know, we've got to slow the decision making down at NATO and educate those decision makers that this may not be the right tool for the job. And hopefully we can come to some sort of an understanding of what NATO could do to assist. Because at the end of the day, NATO wants to be visibly assisting 
one of their allies or partners that is in need of assistance. I'd like to break that down a little bit more because there's three sort of areas which I think are really important to, to hit upon, which is first is the, the decision-making culture between organizations and the SIPMIL domains, which can often be very different as anybody who's worked in any of those domains or interacted with each other can, can understand. And you've also highlighted here, which is the military has a very deliberate planning process. And there's on a, say, a civilian or even a political level, as you mentioned, there's a the expedited rationale to have an effect and be visible, right? And so you want these things to be in place and to do it quickly. And if the military hasn't planned for it, then quickly is often not an option. So this is where it, there's an interesting challenge to manage an expectation management in terms of these decision-making cultures. But I think it's, you know, the Alliance itself and NATO is not the only one that has that. I mean, if we look at recently the the fires in Hawaii and sort of look at how that was managed, the use of the National Guard and others, and sort of what decision-making was happening there. In this case, it's almost a little bit of a reverse situation because there wasn't the complexities and the escalation at an international level, like where NATO would get involved. But at a local level, it's the civilians wanting to make a decision. They're leading that response effort. They're leading that disaster relief effort. And at the same time, when and where should they use military capabilities to support that? When then it's the same effect that's happening, but on a, say, a community scale, because then it's back to what are their capabilities? What do they have to offer? What can they bring to the table? Obviously, logistics and simply... You know, manpower is a huge one, especially in terms of, say, flooding, for example. So I think these are shared challenges, you know, whether you're talking about a community level and community leaders, or if you're even talking about large international organizations like NATO. Yeah. And how the decision-making process at NATO is slow. It's meant for military operation. It's meant for, you know, the collective defense idea, and it is intended to give people time to think about second and third order effects and so on and so forth. So the decision-making process at NATO, just for a, a normal crisis, there's six decision points in the process. One, we have something on the horizon. And then we, the first decision is council says, okay, give me a, an assessment. So we'll ask the military to give an assessment. Then after the assessment, the military committee will approve that assessment and then it becomes military advice to the council. So after that, then they're tasked to provide options and they'll come up with a range of options. Those options will be decided upon by council and the council will decide what option they're leaning towards and they'll have a decision there and ask the military to develop the plan. So then the plan, there's actually, for the plan, there's two decision points. One is a concept of operations and then another for the actual plan itself. And then that will sit on a shelf and they will take another decision when to execute that plan. So that's just the planning process itself. It's cumbersome. But in these emergency situations, we have learned how to expedite those processes. But in a number of our most recent crises, everyone knows, you know, we went through COVID, we went through the Afghanistan evacuation, we went through Ukraine, we went through Turkey earthquake. We went through all of those. There was no military assessment that turned into military advice. So we jumped all the way to the end and the council pretty much decided on what to do, what to deliver. The military was stopped having to plan with the decisions, but not knowing whether they had the capacity or whether it was the right tool for the job. So to get it one of the, the military assessment and planning process, that's our biggest challenge. So when there is something on the horizon, the early discussions between the political side and the military side have to really 
be, you know, joined up so well so that we don't put a decision in front of 31 allies and say, military, go execute this plan. It doesn't necessarily help the affected people, but it's something that NATO is doing. So it becomes very frustrating for those of us working in that space when we deliver something where we know we could have delivered something better. And it's interesting from the perspective that you're mentioning, because this is not just an international organization thing. This is also in every sort of community and and larger organization that you have to have these continued conversations about probabilities and risks and hazards and, and, and making contingency plans and everything that goes along with that, because it's just, it has to be an ongoing conversation. And I think the climate is changing, not climate, climate, but I think the environment is changing in terms of where this is becoming a little bit more recognized. But I still feel like in many cases, there's this idea of a plan on the shelf and we've already done our job and we checked the box in, in many organizations and many communities. And and you see that it's evident in the failure of response in many, many disasters. The other point that you mentioned was also duplication of effort. And this is always a big deal. In every type of large humanitarian relief or disaster response effort, duplication of effort is extremely challenging. And if I just look at examples of like Hurricane Katrina, right, and, and these large scale hurricanes that are happening even, you know, in the, in the States every year, and then all the volunteer resources coming in, things you don't even ask for. I mean, and then you have all this junk essentially that comes in and, and you have to, you know, the local government and the state level, they have to find a way to manage just the sheer amount of duplication of effort and, and unnecessary items that you get. So this is something that is a huge challenge. And what are some of the observations you've had in trying to manage duplication of effort, especially as you mentioned, In an international context, you know, nations can do what they want first, and then maybe they want to go through the EU, or then maybe they want to go to the UN or NATO. Duplicative effort is every time we get into a large committee, particularly in the council, the North Atlantic Council, that is the biggest link nations raise. They don't want the duplicative effort of one other organizations, but, you know, they're sitting behind their nameplates of their nationality. And they don't want to be, you know, suggesting NATO can do something when they have something that they could offer in that regard as well. So I think the EADRCC itself has been, uh, been an information clearinghouse. So UNOCHA, the EU, they rely on the information that we gather from nations. We have the nations at our fingertips. And, you know, I'll just give, you know, hypothetical. So let's say there's, you know, forest fires and okay, they want water pumps, generators, cots and blankets. So we're going around and we will understand, even though the nations have not told us, we will go out and reach to them and find out what they are um, donating. So if, you know, they're asking for 10,000 tents, we're not giving them 20,000 tents. So we're keeping a running total and the UNOCHA and the ERCC and the EU's organization, they're watching these situation reports as well. So, you know, we haven't been able to, you know, be 100% accurate because some nations don't respond, but we watch social media. We watch, you know, the host nation itself, what it's receiving, you know, from other organizations. So we're normally on top of that. So I give one example too, People were always kind of ensuring that our COVID response was not duplicative with the uh, ERCC and the uh, European Union. So through 2020, we had, you know, almost daily video teleconferences, making sure, you know, we were working together. But at the end of the year, we went down our list of nations that still had open requests for assistance. 
we had 12 nations on our list. They had six nations on our list. And there was only two nations that were on both our list. So we were covering all the nations and ensuring that, you know, one nation wasn't getting too many ventilators or, you know, too many FFP2 masks. And we were making sure the nations that were receiving less goods uh, were receiving what they needed as well. So I think there was a good effort uh, amongst the organizations. Okay, with the EU, we had one every day. Um, but with the United Nations, they held a VTC every week. So we were in the picture of the global response as well, not just the Euro-Atlantic region. So I think we've done a fair job on making sure we were not duplicating effort. But then again, when it comes down to duplicative effort, there's times when NATO as an institution itself wants to deliver. And, if, and politically, they need to deliver. And I'm not saying it happens all the time, but there are times when they're delivering something that another organization is already, you know, handling. But it's something that NATO can offer and they want to offer that. And this is, you know, NATO's prerogatives as an organization itself. Well, sure. Now, ultimately, as with all donations or all assistance, right, it's up to that nation to accept what they're being offered. And so at the end of the day, I mean, the nation has to say yes or no about what they want to receive. And so I think that's an important point in all of that especially in terms of duplication of effort. And that's ideally what we would see on an international level is that that nation is the affected nation is very good in sort of bringing all of their data points together, all the needs and requirements and putting them on a single list and sort of shopping that around to different international organizations and, you know, dividing it that way. I mean, if you need, I don't know, for example, health items, you go to the World Health Organization and say, what have you got? What can you fill? And if you can't fill that, I'm going to go somewhere else. And so the affected nation bears that responsibility, in my view, to a large extent, because I mean, you can't accept everything and nor would you want to. Then you end up with like 4 million pairs of socks for no reason or whatever the case is. It's a good example. But yeah, you know yourself and sometimes the host nation or the stricken nation is totally overwhelmed and it's very hard for them to keep track. And the response to Ukraine was challenged because there was multiple ministries requesting assistance to NATO. So it wasn't just one single point of contact in Ukraine. It was multiple ministries. So we became the broker and understood what was being require, requested from the nation itself and sharing that with other nations. So, you know, this was our biggest challenge during the Ukraine crisis, and it still is today. And that's one of the, the interesting things, because you see that in many different levels, especially if you work internationally in a lot of the work that we do, which is, you know, you, in, especially in these countries that, hey, say, for example, have a higher dependency upon the military structures to for you know response activities you'll see multiple times so in the military mindset you know you have one single chain of command you need authorization you need orders to execute there's a decision making process it's very structured but at the same time at a community level they'll be getting calls from like the mayors and and others and saying well you're just right here help us with this flood response you know we need somebody now and so there's this bit of a conundrum that's where it's you know at the same level sort of reflecting upon what you said it's like you're getting multiple requests, but the actual request can only come from one, say, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, right? So how do you balance these requirements? Because it happens every single day, even down to the the average response. If I were to use an example of, and, and I don't know that it's happening, but say there is, building up on your example, there's a wildfire somewhere and in Southern Europe, which is likely the case today. <laughs> You know, and then there's military assets in that municipality, in that region, and they have helicopters. I mean, Obviously, somebody from a mayor or, you know, mayor's office is making a phone call to the MOD saying we need support, right? 
So I think it's coming in at many layers and what you're sort of encountering at NATO is also happening on many different levels in our nations. You're exactly right. And so this is one of the things, when you have that single point of contact and the single decision, it also kind of gives us an arm's length distance from, you know, diplomacy issues that could be turned against the organization itself. So when it comes down to delivering earthquake support to Turkey, you know, AFAD is the decision maker on where the goods go, you know, who receives the the NATO tents, who receives the assistance from UNHCR or yeah, and it was very I only came to NATO in two thousand and seven, but we had this floods in Pakistan in 2010. And and I read all the lessons learned of the 2005 earthquake there. And those were some of the accusations that, you know, it was the the smaller regional areas that were getting the assistance from NATO. But at the end of the day, it was the government that was deciding. Uh, and, and, you know, there was accusations that the government was, you know, favoring certain regions and, you know, bribes and the corruption. I'm sure this goes on a lot, but when it came to the Pakistan floods, NATO is only delivering the goods to Islamabad airport. And then it was the responsibility of the government to distribute that out. So we had no contact and no, we had norms like distance from you know, the decisions that were being taken and where the assistance was going. So we need to trust those organizations and it's not up to us to decide, oh no, we want these to go to this region X or region Y. So, so it's very important to have those institutions in place functioning and uh, with some integrity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just raises sort of one of the important parts of this is that you, and you mentioned it, which is you have to trust the institutions that you're delivering aid to. It doesn't matter where, if you're coming from the Red Cross or NATO or anybody else, right? It's the same dilemma, which is if you deliver it to point A and it doesn't go farther than point A and it's never distributed, that's not necessarily, you know, they, in this case, NATO's responsibility to make sure that food gets to a Northwest district somewhere. You're delivering it based on trust that that government, those people, those institutions are wanting to do best for their communities and, and provide that needed relief. And that they're communicating the needs, that they're eliminating any sort of a duplication of efforts, and that they're actually taking advantage of what's being delivered and, and using it instead of maybe warehousing it or something else like that. But these are all things you have to have that trust because you know, we're never going to audit anybody, right? It's it's built on sort of the good faith of the fact that you've asked for a thousand blankets, we're going to give you a thousand blankets because you just had an earthquake or a flood or a fire. Well, you're exactly right. You mentioned audit. And this comes back to some of the ADRCC tracking that we were doing. We knew every single hospital that the ventilators from NATO, we knew exactly which hospital they were going to and who was receiving them. And this was kind of important because you're likely aware that you know, the U.S. donated thousands and thousands of ventilators. And the end of the day, no one really knew where they went. NATO itself, we received a fair amount of ventilators from the U.S. And we tracked them down to each and every hospital. So this was important for us because it's the nation's payers' money that is used to purchase those aid and, and supplies. So we're very diligent in the way we tracked and traced. So we had a monitoring and evaluation system in place when we were delivering COVID assistance. Well, that's very good. One of the concerns that I've seen from many nations who are accepting assistance is what are the requirements that follow that, right? And so it's basically, you know, what are we signing up for if we accept this package of aid, you know? And so 
I think that nations are also cognizant and sometimes a bit hesitant about receiving aid or any bilateral assistance because they're not sure what the requirements are that follow that. So if you've been able to do that and track it down to the individual hospital, I think that's a fantastic example. Curious now, sort of shifting gears a little bit in terms of technology. As we've established, this is sort of multi-domain, multi-organization level coordination. You mentioned being on VTCs every day with UN and other agencies. What has there been any sort of advancements in technology that give everybody sort of a common operational picture or that have helped you in sort of delivery of or the ability to do your job in coordination of relief, specifically if you do have to track things down to individual, you know, hospital levels? Yeah. So it's a very good question because technology is accelerating developments in every domain. So why can't the same be done in the disaster response domain? Yes, sure, it's hard to predict an earthquake, but there are some predictability algorithms. Same with, you know, weather storms can be more prepared and understand these. So the uh, the technology world, yeah, COVID uh, shook us into a technological leap just with VTCs. We always thought we had to have these meetings in person. Of course, you know, our community itself is better face-to-face. You know someone who knows someone who knows someone. That's all good. But when it comes down to delivering, the VTC was extremely helpful. And everyone learned to work from video teleconferences. The social media aspect of it, you know, the WhatsApp, Facebook pages, all works and it helps. Evacuating people out of Afghanistan, I don't know what we would have done without, you know, WhatsApp or without Facebook pages or, you know, because communications were not that strong at the time and just the information management. So there is... AI technology and the information management tools that are out there. So the other aspect in our community, we were testing this. Uh, we had a EADRCC exercise in 2018 and our exercises, they're very multinational, but it's an opportunity for nations to come and give demonstrations on their new technologies and their equipment. And we had these drones flying, taking imagery. Imagery would go back to the nation's capital where the technology was there. They could tell us how strong and structured the building was. We could identify casualties. And this was being tested back in 2018. So we, you know, we're five years advanced on that. I'm sure the technology has come a, a lot further now. Climate patterns, you know, we can do a lot more predictability with the technology that's out there nowadays. So just really amazed. I'm not a techie myself, so I'm kind of glad I'm at the uh, rear end of my time in this space, but um, the technology will help. This is going to save lives and it's going to really improve response. For sure. So we've covered quite a bit today in terms of even just, you know, interagency cooperation, civil domain sort of planning and the challenges and even the international sort of response mechanisms. But if you were reflecting now upon sort of, you know, your time at NATO, plus your previous military career and, and civilian career, and, and you're looking at this now, anybody that's getting into this civil planning efforts these days, what are sort of your top three recommendations you would give them? Okay. I'll give it from a, an institutional perspective at first. And from an institutional perspective, the early warning systems are important. And the early warning systems, the capabilities need to be there. You know, in fact, uh, NATO has very little capability that it owns itself. We rely on nations that have those capabilities. So I would like to see NATO have that early warning capability. You know, they do have the intelligence community that works on uh, security and defense issues. But if we're going to be serious about the humanitarian disaster response area, we should at least, at a bare minimum, be tied in with the EU's early warning network as well and the UNOCHA. So we should be at least uh, tied into there. 
So the early discussions with the military, so the civilians, before they make their decisions, they need to have those early discussions with the military. And that's on the capability options that the military has in their pocket. And it's absolutely crazy if the decision-making is in advance of those discussions, you know, and like to shed light on some examples, but may not be appropriate for me to at this time, just coming from NATO, but I, I seen a lot of this where the decisions were not in line with military capacities were available. Because at the end of the day, NATO, when they offer something and make a decision, they have to be assured that some nation is going to provide that capability because we don't have that capability as an institution itself. We have to rely on nations in-kind offers of assistance in this nature. The early deployment of liaison officers is paramount. Consider uh, the EADRCC as a a relationship broker. We have to be in touch with the military strategic headquarters and they're the planners and they're the ones that know the capabilities and they're in discussion with the uh, chiefs of defense of the nations that might offer something. So we need to be uh, tying those relationships into the other institutions and aligning it with their objectives and needs. And we have to tie in the national level interest and needs as well. And then we also have to have the the lower op do the relationship broker as well with the operational headquarters. The you know the JFs Joint Force Command uh, Naples, Joint Force Command Bronson, those organizations that go and do the implement. Because at the end of the day, ourselves we're talking to UN Ocha in Geneva. We're not talking to the, the on-site incident commander. We're talking to Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We're not talking to the on-site incident commander itself. So we need to make sure all those relationships are connected so that, one, we have a shared understanding of the situation. We have to have that shared understanding of uh, cultural sensitivities. Uh, the last thing we want to do is you can deliver as much aid as you want, but if you make one cultural diplomatic error, that can destroy the image of the organization. And this has happened in the past, in earlier years in NATO. So, and then you've mentioned it too, my fourth and final, you said three, I'm going to give the fourth because you've mentioned it as well. It's that constant, constant communication, whether it be through VTC, WhatsApp group, in-person discussions, but everyone at the, it's a multi-level and it's a multi-layered requirement for that communications. So that if something is going on in the ground, the political decision makers know immediately as well. So giving you four. Now, from an institutional perspective, but anyone that you know wants to be involved in the civ mill environment, military background is good. But really, the they know how to plan. What they are missing, and I don't say they're missing, but I'll, I'll say they're short on it. It's the experienced staff from these organizations, World Food Program, UNOCHA, you know, so that they can bring that shared understanding to the military. Exchange of liaison officers is always good, but when there's a time of crises. Normally, those people that are good at doing that liaison, they're deployed to the disaster. And so that, you know, we forget all the time about those liaison officers. In fact, the strategic military headquarters at NATO, they at one point were doing exchange with the World Food Program. And so they were doing an exchange of uh, staff on a regular basis. I think that has helped out from their planning perspective.
So in a nutshell, the idea of the sieve mill is the shared understanding of, you know, the planning processes, the consequences of your actions. And I think that's super important to, if you're in this sieve mill environment. You know, it's always amazing to me. The more recommendations I hear, the more that I am able to sort of bring them down to simple, simple, like human interaction, right? It's always like relationships and communication that have the biggest impact. And it's, it's never, you know, you never have a recommendation of, well, if you just by the software platforms and it'll fix all your problems, right? Yeah. And so it's always coming down to individual relationships, shared understanding, and a common effort that that is is helping in any sort of disaster, emergency, or crisis management field. So I very much appreciate those recommendations, and I think they echo very well for anybody. It doesn't matter where you are. I mean, international domain, like where you're operating, or even at a community level. I mean, we have shared interests across communities, and we just have to keep that in mind. So. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I want to give a huge thank you to our guest, Tim, for his time and sharing his valuable insights on the CIV mill relationship and disaster response planning. It's really an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Al, thank you so much for, for having me on this podcast. And so to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website or social media channels. And if you like the topics and discussions, please share and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, stay safe safe and keep learning.